It's Positive Spark Plug time, and I'm your host, Candace, and I am so fired up for you guys. For today's special guest is Val Jones, and she shares her story on how she trained all throughout her life to become a figure skater, how an incident took that away from her, how she dealt with dealing with feeling that she lost her identity, how she built herself up, how she transitioned into writing a book, becoming a public speaker, becoming a coach, and so much more. This episode is pure fire. She shares insights, inspiration, wisdom, and true raw stories, and it is fantastic, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear, so let's get going. Hi, Val. How are you? I'm good, Candice. Thank you for having me on your show today. Oh, thank you. I am so excited that uh, we got connected and that we are able to do this. Uh, Being able to connect with you just a little while ago and kind of hearing a little bit of your story and all that you are doing has just really gotten me fired up for my listeners because I know it's going to be really impactful. It's going to really be connecting. And I feel you have a story that's going to really be able to connect with a lot of people. And I think that those are the stories that really truly transform the world to a better uh, to a better place and um so i'm really excited to have you on the podcast thank you so much for uh i i think you you asked me i believe yeah. you reached out to me yes so yeah. like thank you for reaching out to me and and connecting with me that's i i appreciate that yeah absolutely um so to start off uh with my questions uh since this whole pandemic stuff started happening i like starting off my my podcast with a fun question so my question is what is your three favorite emojis or the three emojis that best describe you and why okay i like the tilted uh smiley laughy cry emoji because I will laugh even at inappropriate things. Um, I like the um, mad, uh, uh, red-faced man, and I like the super sad uh, cry face. So apparently I'm just very emotional. I feel all of the emotions. So I think I only bounce between those those three i'm i'm so happy i'm laughing until i cry i'm crying or i'm i i want to kill people i'm just (laughs) (laughs) those are amazing though and it's important to feel all things it's okay to i like to say it's okay to have that if you want to say label of being emotional i'd rather be emotional and, and be able to feel everything than be numb to things the, the key is um, learning to control them and using them um, constructively. I'm, yeah. still working on, I'm still working on that. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's going to be a life process for everybody. 
Because I think life is going to continuously give you new challenges that are just maybe a little bit beyond what you felt or what you think you felt before. So it's going to always push you to your, to challenge you to become better, to feel it even deeper so that whatever it is, whether it's a good feeling or not a good feeling that you don't like to feel, um, you're able to feel both really really more powerfully yeah anger is um anger is a is a great uh driver for for me and and let me be clear sometimes i'm not angry at anybody but myself um but i i'm i'm trying to learn how to challenge that um anger and like i said use it uh positively um and not in a in a destructive mode, and and most of the times it is right. It's anger at myself for not showing up as the person that I want to be, or letting uh letting the small stuff get to me. And it's all small stuff, right? So, um, but I'm learning. I'm learning. Yes. So let's let's dive into a little bit of who you are. You are a public speaker. You are an author. Um, you you do a lot of amazing things. But I want to know who were you before you grew into all of these different I would like to say um, character characters of who you are and the hats that you wear. Um, how, what was your lifestyle growing up? So I think at, at, at the basic root of myself, and a lot of people don't understand this about me, is I'm a competitor. It's not what I do. It's who I am. It's who I've always been. And I suspect it, it is who I will always be. Um, now, I'm not sure if that comes from nature or nurture. I am the youngest of seven. I grew up in a very competitive family, right? Who could eat dinner, dinner the fastest? Who could run to the yes? Brown <laughs> station wagon with the brown paneling on the side. Um, who could make the stupidest face at the dinner table? And let's be clear, dad usually won that. <laughs> um, so I just grew up in, in this environment. Um, all of my siblings played sports. Um, some of them played multiple sports. And at the age of five, when a brand new ice rink opened about five, seven minutes away from my house, uh, my dad, who was a semi-professional hockey player said, let's go skating. I want to introduce the kids to the, to the ice. Yeah. And I don't think my parents had any, any, idea of what was in front of us on what started off to be just an innocent family outing. Um, so the minute I put my skates on, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Six months later, I am much older than you, Candace. Six months later, I watched Dorothy Ham Hamill capture her goal in the 1976 Innsbruck Games. And I was like, oh, yes. That is what I want to do. I want to skate in the Olympics for my country. And at the age of...
six, I made the decision that, and at home when I was 11, so that I could train with uh, better coaches and uh, better skaters. You're muted. Sorry, you cut out. Like you, you okay. went, you froze at age okay. of five. Okay. So at the age of five, I started figure skating. It was supposed to be an innocent family outing. Um, my dad was a semi-professional hockey player, and he wanted to introduce us to the ice. And I just don't think that my parents had any inkling of what was ahead of them on that innocent day. Um, six months later, I watched Dorothy Hamill capture her gold in the 1976 winner, um, the Innsbruck Games. And my fate was sort of sealed. I decided, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to compete in the Olympics for my country, and I don't care what it takes to get there. So. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of where my, my story starts. Wow. So did you, did you tell your dad did, and, and what was his reaction? Did, was he all for it? Did he, did he look for like ways to get you on the ice more? Was your mom into it? What, what was your next step after you felt that? So we just went to a, what they call a public session where it's just open to anybody. And upon, um, the end of that session, there were some coaches there and they said, Hey, is anybody interested? in taking group lessons and me and my middle brother Bruce we were like yeah we love this we want to learn how to skate better and group lessons once or twice a week became private lessons several times a week and when I was 11 having very supportive parents my mom and I decided to move uh, from our family home in Sacramento California to the Bay Area so that I could train with higher level coaches and skaters. And it was there that I spent the next seven years training um, with Brian Boitano and his coach. So um, I led a very uh, blessed life. Um, Mom and I would leave the Bay Area on Friday night after my last practice and drive the two two and a half hour trek uh, back home to Sacramento to be with my dad and my siblings. And then we would return back to the Bay Area on Sunday night. And we wow. did that. Yeah. We did that for um, about two and a half years until one Friday night, my mom and I got home. My dad wasn't feeling well. And he um, had a massive heart attack and died in front of me. Wow. Yeah. I was 13 years old. Uh, my dad was 50, um, which I just turned this a year ago. And um, it seems weird now, Candace, for me to be the same age that my dad was when he died. Um, when you're 13, you think 50 is like, oh, my God, like, you know, dinosaurs. Yeah, uh, but now I understand how how truly young he was. Um, so yeah, um, five years after that, I um, 
so I, I trained and I got to compete against all the greats. Um, and I could, I could see my Olympic dream. It just felt like it was, you know, just right there. And, um, but unfortunately, uh, when I was 18, I was training a jump called the triple Lutz and I blew out my knee, which effectively it ended my skating career. Um, 36,000 hours is what I calculated, um, that I trained, um, wow. up until that point. Um, 36,000. Yeah. And that was just on ice training. That didn't include ballet or strength training or sports psychologists that I worked for. That was just on ice training. So I, I suspect that number is higher. Wow. Um, so while I would never, ever want to think of myself as a, uh, Debbie Downer or having a, a bad, um, attitude, here's what I know about life. If you have a heartbeat, chances are at some point, and I don't wish it on you or anybody else, but at some point in, the, in time, you will experience pain, heartbreak, disappointment, and fear. And trust me when I tell you I have experienced all those things and sometimes all of those things at the same time. Having said that, you can't control what happens to you in life, but you can always control your attitude about it. Yeah. And in fact, dare I say, the only two things you can control in your life is your attitude and your work ethic. That's it. That is all you have control over. And so when I think about, yes, being in this COVID world and the, the rules and the, and, and the laws and the, you know, change daily, all you can control is your brain and your work ethic. Yes. Yeah. Well, I first want to say that um, I understand the feeling of the loss of losing a parent. I lost my dad to cancer, so I, I'm sorry for your loss of, and, and that feeling. I know that um, it's not uh, a, a nice feeling to, to live with. Um, my, my dad passed away of cancer. Um, it was first diagnosed in 2000. He got it, uh, he was in remission until 2010. Well, he first got told he had a year to live, um, beat it, um, went into remission until 2010, got it again, um, went into remission for a short amount of time, got it again, and this time it was just, um, too much. So, um, he passed away in 2014. So mine was, uh, it wasn't such a sudden loss. So I don't understand that impact. And so I want to dive a little bit into that because, um, I find that a loss is a loss, but there's a difference between having that, that preparedness as much as you can't actually be prepared for that actual moment mm -hmm. um you do get to somewhat prepare yourself with the feelings that do come with that moment mm -hmm. um so how did how did that sudden change impact you and your family because you like you said like you and your mom were there's a lot of devotion within you guys and and your your practice and your skill within your your career and wanting what you're wanting to do with your skating like 
your hours, like you said, the, the sacrifice of living without not being at, you know, at your house with your dad and the, your siblings, like doing your, what you have to do. How did that sudden change and, and loss impact you and, and the whole, the whole dynamic of things? It changed everything. To the extent that I even wonder sometimes if it even changed the trajectory of who I was supposed to be as a person. Now, I was only 13 when my dad died. At 13, you don't have the coping skills. You don't have, you just don't have anything. Yep. Um, so in all honesty, I struggled for, for a very long time. And, um, you know, it's been 37 years since I lost my dad. It's still hard. I mean, it's still hard. I miss his presence in my life. Um, and I have worked very hard on focusing what I could control. And at some point in those 37 years, my thinking shifted because of a family, not family, but friends and, and, and things that I've seen. I came to realize that some people don't have any dad at all. Or yeah. some people have at the risk of sounding bad, but have really crappy dads. Yeah. And so I had to decide, you know, I got gypped. We all got gypped with dad dying, but you know what? Hey, I still got to have him for 13 years and I got to have him long enough for him to make a true impression on my heart on the morals values and ethics that I still believe in to this day and how lucky am I that I even got to have him yeah years so you know I understand that I hit the jackpot when it came to death um, everybody loved my dad. And it's not that I'm not close with my mom, but I was the youngest of seven. And yes, I was daddy's little girl. Da- my dad was my person. Yeah. Um, so at some point over the last 37 years, I've had to switch my thinking from, oh, boo-hoo me. I haven't had my dad to, I had my dad. Lucky me. Yeah. Lucky me for all of my friends who don't have a dad or who have a really crappy dad. Yay me. So it just took some time and, and, and growing and growing up because at 13, like I said, I didn't have that. So I think, um, it goes back to what I just said. The only thing you can control is your right attitude and your work ethic. So it took me a long time to get to that point, but eventually I have arrived at, wow. It was really lucky to have the dad that I did. Yes. Yes. Wow. That is a, that's, that is a beautiful transition and a beautiful way uh, of really being able to hold the energy within yourself and, and, and carry him within you and, and throughout all that you do. It's just, it's just knowing that he's here. He's still here. He's not here in presence, but he's here. And that, that's, that's a beautiful way of, of putting it. Um, 
because you were so young and, and like you said, you didn't really have the cope, the coping mechanisms to kind of navigate through the big emotions that such a, a loss would bring. Did it lead you to any sort of path that um, might have you might not have liked to have been gone down? Um, that you might not have known that you were going down until you were too deep. Um, was there anything that um, that kind of went along with the loss, I would say, um, without the coping mechanisms that would ha that thirteen year old would not have or make experience because you were leading on friends, you're going into the teenage years drinking alcohol eating, all of those things, right? You can be really resource to any of them. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I immediately after my dad died, um, I took, so I, um, I dropped out of that competitive season because I just, I, ju I just, I just couldn't. My yep. dad died um, late in September and the competitive season usually kicks off in October um, or early November. So I was, you know, four to six weeks away from that year's competitive season. So I just completely dropped out and I almost, and I didn't return back to the ice until the following year. Um, so I almost quit skating at that point. Um, but even at 13, I understood that that's not what my dad would have wanted. So I kind of recommitted to my goal even deeper and more passionately because now I wasn't just skating for me I was skating for my dad as well what you speak of actually came when my skating career ended because oh, okay. now I'm yeah so those years between 13 and 18 I just trained I, mean, I trained my butt off even on my off day Sundays which was supposed to be my rest day I, I, I'd go back to the rink or I'd go to the gym and hit an extra cardio or strength training session. So, um, so I just trained. I think that was my way of, of dealing and coping because that was, it was a safe place. Yeah. It was, it was familiar and it was comfortable yeah. for me to be in that space. Um, I think my dysfunction didn't come when I, five years later at 18, when my skating career ended, that's kind of for me when, when, when a lot of, um, unhealthy coping mechanisms started because now I'm 18, I think I'm an adult and I think I know it all. And, um, so that's really when that started was not at 13. So, um, so when you're, when you're like when your accident happened, your skating accident, like that's when kind of after that, were, were you told like there was a possibility that you could skate again or were you told by the doctors that there was there was no chance for you to, to skate again? Yeah, his exact words were, I think I could put you back together, but it's my professional opinion that you never skate again. Oh, OK. Fine done. He's like, and we're not even sure, you know, we're not even sure if you're going to be able to walk when you're 35. We just don't. We don't. 
Wow, eh? Yeah. So, um, I, I don't even know how to, like, that's a lot for a mind to, to, to process, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you, you get that, that news, you start kind of on the road to recovery, were you in the mindset of, okay, I want to recover, let's see if I can deny what the doctors are saying, or were you just like, okay, screw it, whatever, let's just finish, and like, were you angry, were you mad, were you, what was your, like, what was your emotion after you kind of allowed it to sink in, because I know it's going to take a little bit for that to happen yeah. first. Yeah, um, there was all of those emotions. And at the risk of, of being over emotional, like we talked about in the beginning, um, it, it almost, Candace, it almost felt like another death to me, having it just ripped away out of my hands in a moment. And I had no control over it. So, and this time I didn't have my dad there, you know, to, to, to walk me through it. Um, so it was definitely like a death and I definitely felt all the emotions. I did. You you nailed it because uh, we hadn't talked about that prior. I did try to go back after I had surgery and, and fixed the knee, um, but he was right. I mean, every time I tried to do a jump, it it the pain was excruciating. It was excruciating, and when you're popping, you know, a hundred to two hundred doubles and triples an hour, six hours a day, six days a week, you have to have a healthy knee to land on and. So it was kind of that realization like, oh, God, he really is right. This really isn't going to be a possibility for me. So it was kind of at that point that I was like, I guess I have to accept his diagnosis. So it was was kind of like your identity, uh, like the person that you believe that you were, like you were going to be like the Olympic star and it was kind of like it was the death of that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. 100%. How, how how did you grieve that person? How, how, how were you, how did you grieve the old, that old person? And what did you do to start building yourself back up to be who you are today? Um, not in healthy ways. I can tell you that. Um, um, I never have done drugs, so I never did drugs, but I did start underage drinking. And that was kind of the start of my, um, my eating disorder, um, that I struggled with for many years after. Um, the process has, has been over, you know, over a long period of time. It's like, you gain a little bit of knowledge and you put it into place and then you gain a little knowledge and then you put it into place. So the healing, if you will, didn't come all at once. It's not like I woke up on, on a morning and was like, Oh, I'm no longer bitter and angry over my, the loss of my skating dream and my sense of self. Um, it doesn't happen like that. It happens, or at least for me, it happened over a period of time. So, um, you know, I just, I had some inappropriate, ways of, of dealing uh, with the loss of that identity. 
Now, you're, you mentioned eating disorder. These things come on very silently, I find. Um, or am I wrong? Like, were you, was this one of those things where you didn't really know that you were kind of doing it until somebody was like, hey, or you noticed it? Like, these are silent little hideouts. Like, they, like, hide, and then they speak up, and it's like, bam, and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, okay, maybe maybe I do have a, a problem with, with eating or and my relationship with food. Um how was that for you? Like, was that for you? And how did you start working to build a healthy relationship with food and nutrition? Um, you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, it's not, so now that I have years on it and I can look back, I was tinkering with it probably three, three years before I stopped quitting skating, um, I had been, you know, we get injured. It, 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 it happens. And when you are injured and you're no longer training six hours a day, six days a week, but you still eat the same, like those two things don't, don't necessarily go together. Yeah. Um, I had a judge tell me, um, that I was fat and I needed to drop 10 pounds. And I think I was 15. So, that so I think it probably started before then. I just didn't know what it was. And in the, you know, early to mid nineteen eighties, eating disorders like nobody talked about it. It wasn't a thing. Uh so it was yeah, it it was not an overnight thing. It was a progressive thing. And what I realized now after lots of therapy um is that it wasn't ever about the food or even my weight it was about control okay and for me my life felt totally out of control my dad was gone my skating was gone everything that i had ever known was was completely out of control but what came in and what came out, I could control. And I know that now. I didn't know it then. Yeah. And I've done a lot of hard work. Um, um, so that's kind of how it, it manifested over, over the years. So you, you started noticing, you started becoming aware that, you know, something isn't right with your relationship with, your food and and the way that it's treating your body the way that you're looking at it um how did you seek help did you do it on your own did you just go to a group did you ask friends family how did you have did friends already know about it were they already asking you to get help were they bringing it up how did that so um (laughs) I got really good at hiding it. Um, people with eating disorders tend to do a good job of hiding it. Um, um, and I was able to sustain that for quite some time. Um, it was actually 
this boy that I had met at college, we've now been married 26 years, um, this boy that I met, and we were talking about just life and stuff, and and he said um, something that that may have saved my life and that I will never, ever forget. And he was like, because I knew I kind of like, I knew I liked him more than just a friend. And he was like, oh, my God. Those girls who do that, he's like, I, I just couldn't ever date or be with somebody like that. That's just like, I just, I just don't think I could do that. And it was like something triggered in me that it was like, oh, but I'm that person. And so if I want him to like me back, I'm going to have to be somebody different. So. And the healing, again, didn't come overnight. Um, I did have a, a professor who helped me who I confided in. Um, it wasn't professional therapy. It was just somebody who I bonded with and um, um, who helped me out. I don't think I would recommend that to anybody. I think if anybody is sitting in that position, you need to get professional help. Um, and I think we've come a long ways in, in that since 19... 90 or whatever, um, for me. So, um, that's, uh, that's how I started on the path to healing. And then the healing came in layers, right? It was that. And then, um, and then, um, five years after we got married, I got pregnant with our first child and I knew, you know, I'm now eating for two. And so I have to eat really healthy. And so that added another layer. And then we added our son four years later. And that added another layer of healing. And then in 2007, I found CrossFit. And I was able to um, look at food as fuel. It's not the enemy. It's fuel. Yeah. If you want to eat. Eat, I I sw- made the switch and I was eating to perform, and so the healing has just—it's literally taken twenty twenty five years, right? Yes. So when when that boy at that moment said that, and that mo- that that triggered that thought of, oh, well, that's me. Um, I really like, and and I like him and I want him to like me back. How did you, how did you bring forth that, that aspect of your life? Because you guys were going to get intimate in the relationship, not just physically, but with talking and the emotions and stuff. When did he come into play in knowing that that might be a part of who you are? And was it him sticking out, knowing that that might be a part of who you are, and you knowing that he said what he said? Did that did that really bring a part, like a lot of healing for you and a lot of self-love? Was it the self-love that brought most of it? Like that, that's a big moment, right? Because if he's saying that and you're like, whoa, and now you guys are married, there had to be a moment where that, that, uncomfortable conversation had to come into play. How was that for you guys? It, it took me several years to get to that point. Um, because I was 
up until that point in time, nobody that I knew of on the earth knew what I had been doing. And so it was, I am, I need to make sure I can trust this person to tell him what I felt was my, was my deepest, darkest secret. And so I had to make sure I had to have enough time. I had to really get to know him um, in order to be able to trust him with this information because I didn't want to expose myself too early in fear that he would, you know, not want to be with me, not want to date me, not want, you know. Um, so it it took some time. Um, well, for one, I'm happy that, uh, you guys are happy and you guys are in love and that it all worked out because I love love. So, um, I'm happy that, you know, that belief that he had in that moment when he was speaking those words, even though it transformed your life, I'm happy that that belief within him also got changed so that you guys can now, you know, be in this love and in this marriage that you guys are having and in this life that you're building. That's a beautiful thing, right? It's crazy how it changed your life. But without him even really realizing it, that belief is not a part of who he is because he did marry a woman that was that girl. Yeah. Right? So we've talked about it since and he's like, I don't even remember saying that. And I'm like, what? That's like the most (laughs) pivotal point, right? For me. You don't even remember it? Like, how could you? (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I wonder, uh, there's a, there's so much, there's so much to your story from like, you're, you're skating to, to your husband, to your parents. It all leads to, to your circle, to your mentorships. How important is it to have mentors, have leaders, have an, a, a, a inner circle of people that you can trust? And how do you look for them? Or how did you look for them within your career and your life? That is a good question. Um, I heard a long time ago, I'm not sure who said it. I, I think it might have been Jim Rohn, but I could be wrong. Um, but it's something like this. If you want to raise the bar on who you are, whether that's personally, professionally, athletically, whatever it is, if you want to raise the bar, seek out people who you deem better than yourself and go out and hang out with them and ask them to mentor you. Or if not that, at least, um, you know, if you want to be healthy and fit, emulate the habits that healthy and fit people do. And that goes for health or wealth or your business or your marriage or your raising your children, like it applies to everything. So, yeah, I know a lot of people, but I have a very tight inner circle who um, I deem uh, better than me, who I look to uh, for advice. And, and I hope and pray that somebody out there is like, ooh, Val Jones is 
you know, I'm not saying that I'm all that, but, but my goal is when you learn something, you pass it on to the next generation. So my goal is, is, is to be able to mentor somebody who is struggling with whatever they're struggling with. If I can offer them support and encouragement and tips and tricks. So yeah, it is super important to have a coach, have mentors, have those friends who don't accept mediocrity from me because mediocrity is for cowards. Ah. Yes, I did just say that. Mediocrity yeah. is for cowards. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yes. So somebody who will, um, can I cuss on your show? Yeah. Somebody who will call you on your bullshit. Yes, yes. I That I 100% agree. You need to be able to call, like, I have, I, w- I was talking to, with someone, and I was like, I don't do superficial friendships, and they're like, <laughs> and I was like, I just, I just don't, I don't have time for that. Yeah. Um, I get, I might not be your person for everything, but I at least need to know that I am a person in your relation, in, in this relationship, and not just someone hanging out for whenever you desire to be around like you know what I mean like I need to know um there's actual connection so I love that who were some or who are some of these close mentors that you uh deem um better than you that you look up to that you um consider as mentors I mean are you looking for names or you just want examples of who Uh, names and some examples of why. Okay. Um, my good friend, Annie Berryhill. Here's the funny thing about Annie and I. I've known her for years. I've never met her in person. In fact, when we finally meet in person, I might just hug her so hard. I'm going to just squeeze her so hard. Um, she has been a great mentor of mine. She is, um, a CrossFitter. Um, she is certified in nutrition. Because even though I don't practice an eating disorder, I still have disordered thinking sometimes. Like, if you're an alcoholic and you're sober, you're still an alcoholic, right? Well, I I, I still have an eating disorder. Um, So she helps me a lot um, with my nutrition. Um, She is just highly gifted in her spirituality and and I turn to her uh, for those and she's a little bit further ahead in her parenting journey than I am so I appreciate her her wisdom and advice on 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 parenting um so she covers a, a, a huge um arena uh for me um my good friend um Mark Eaton um he um He's actually married to Reba McIntyre's sister. What? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And he is just a great mentor um, for me in my business because he also is a speaker and uh, leadership um, um, developer. Um, He's a great mentor in, in my marriage. And he is a great mentor and he too is further in his parenting journey than I am. So, um, yeah, I have, I mean, I could go on and on. Um, 
But I think what I would really um, like your audience to know is, think about this. When you turn on the TV and you're watching a, a, a professional sports game, who's always on the sideline? Like always. A coach. Yep. Always. Yep. Michael Jordan had a coach. Wayne Gretzky had a coach. Like all the people, right? Um, so I feel like some people, sometimes I get the impression that people who are like, oh no, I'm too embarrassed to hire a coach. Um, there is, um, yeah, be humble enough to be like, I don't know how to do this. And I need somebody who knows how to do it, who has, who has cleared the path for me, who has already, they already occupy the space that I aspire to be, and I'm going to hire them. Now, if you can't afford to do that, you know, ask them for their mentorship. And if you can't afford that, well, everybody can afford that. But if you can't get uh, anybody to agree to that, then, you know, at all of our fingertips, we have all the information we could ever need. Right? So, in fact, Rachel Hollis, she's like, I built my multi-million dollar business on a high school diploma and a Google search bar. So there's information out there. So to say I don't know how is not a viable excuse. There are ways to find out. You have this, you, I, I love this mindset that you have. Um, and it, and it seems that it stems right from like when you were a younger person where, um, it's not, I, I don't want to say the word perfection because that's not, I don't think you start, it's not your perfectionist because you don't use that word and you don't describe it that way. But you're always striving to fulfill your, like, what's the word that I'm looking for? Your potential. Always. Like, you're always striving for that potential. You're not looking for perfection every single time. You don't need that perfection. You're just always wanting to strive for that potential. So when something doesn't go right or it's not perfect, you're, you're not like, ah, and you freak out, got to do it again 10,000 times that night until it's perfect. You're just like, okay, how can I go home, rest, do what I need to do so that when I hit it again tomorrow, I can hit my potential a little bit deeper. I love that. Was that something that you you felt inside of you all the time? Was that a belief that you have been given within you by people telling you things about you, like you can do it, you can do it, you can always do it? Was that something given, shared both, all of it, grown? Because that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to have. Yeah. So my saying to, to coin a phrase uh, for you is progress, not progress, progress, not perfection. And so, well, Candace, here's what it is, okay? It's not like I stuck my skates on and, and my coach said, okay, today we are going to learn how to do a double axle. And I went out and did it on the first try. I mean, that, that's not how it happens. No. Um, um, it's not how it happens for anybody. No. It takes thousands of, of hours to, to, perfect what you people would see on TV, right? 
Um, so I don't know if Malcolm Gladwell's uh, theory on 10,000 hours to master something is right or not. I suspect that he is. But I can tell you, I probably fell 10,000 times before I ever landed on my feet when I was learning that jump. So it was, um, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think it was instilled uh, by my parents and reinforced by my coaches and then reinforced by my own personal experience that that's not how it happens. I don't go out on day one of learning the double axle and land on the first try. But if I can learn something, and so that's why um, I have a counterintuitive, um, or not counter, uh, a pop, counter to popular belief that failure is a bad thing. I think failure is amazing. I say chase after it aggressively. Because if you can switch your mind and, and tell yourself it's not failure, it's feedback. Ah, I've never heard that. Okay. Every time I fell learning that double axle or whatever jump it was, it wasn't failure. It was feedback. Did I not jump high enough? Did I not rotate fast enough? Was one of my shoulders off kilter? Um, every single time I fell, which by the way, hurts like hell, it was feedback until 10,000 falls later, you collect all that feedback and it all comes together and, and explodes in that magical moment when you land. It's progress, not perfection. It's feedback. It's not failure. So when I coach my clients and, and the organizations, I'm like, if you're not aggressively pursuing failure, you're not doing your job plain and simple. And I've had CEOs just look at me like they thought that I was just crazy. Um, but seriously, think about it in your life and think about like all the greats. Yeah. They're great because they have failed. Michael Jordan, he got kicked off of his freshman basketball team. Can you imagine? And he has this saying, something, you know, I have failed time and time again. I've lost 300 and some odd games and 72 times I was, and I'm not sure about the numbers, but 72 times I was trusted to take the game-winning shot and I missed. And he says, I only succeed because I fail. So um, that's where it kind of comes back to my sassy remark of mediocrity is for cowards. You have to be a little bit ballsy and a little bit gutsy and take some risks to fail forward and fail aggressively. Now, I'm not suggesting to your audience to be reckless. Yep. I am not saying sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids and go open (laughs) whatever. Okay. I am not saying that, but taking calculated risks and understanding their consequences and being okay with them. That's where you find your progress. Yes. Yeah. That is where the progress is. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, I want to know because mm-hmm. by the sounds of it, I, I want to know your answer because you, like you said, you did like 10,000 falls mm-hmm. and every time it was just feedback, mm-hmm. feedback, feedback. And then all of a sudden you do it and you land it. Yep. That moment 
what is that like? And then what happens after? Because it's like, okay, I landed it. It's like, woo! Was it, okay, let's learn, let's, let's do it again. Let's learn something new. I got that down. Um, was it, okay, now I know how to do it. Like, what was that? Because it sounds like you're, the journey, the journey is what you really love being mm-hmm. in. So let's talk about like the first moments that you landed those those first things. What was that moment like for you? Because for for a little girl, that's got to feel cool. <laughs> so actually, that's a favorite memory of my dad. So it was like 1980, I think, and I was actually learning the double accent, and I was 10. And which is funny because four years before I had watched Dorothy Hamill watch her Olympic medal with just a double axle. And here I was 10 years old and I was learning mine. Wow. Dad bought this huge video camera. Like you can't even like today's that, that fit in the palm of your hand. Like it would just crack you up. And so, um, my dad would come and videotape me so that we could go home and watch it and we could evaluate it and be like, oh, yeah, look, I didn't jump high enough or, you know, get the feedback. And so I kept falling, I kept falling, I kept falling, and I go over to my dad. I'm like, I'm exhausted. And he's like, okay, all you need to do is just do this, this, and this. I don't remember what was. And um, he's like, I think if you do that, everything will collectively come together. I think you're going to land it. I think you're really, really close. I'm like, Dad, I don't want you. And so back and forth, and he's like, Valley, he called me Valley. Valley, I need you to just trust me. I need you to just, just do it one more time. Just, just do, it, do it one more time. And I'm like, okay, I love my dad. I would have done anything for my dad, right? I didn't want to make him sad, so out I went and did it. <laughs> and uh, somewhere I have the video, but we were screaming, we were crying. My dad, you could see on the video, he must have dropped the camera. <laughs> It was just this amazing moment uh, uh, at my dad's encouragement. Um, So that is a very, very fond memory. And I could hear him screaming on the video. Like, it was just this amazing moment. Um, But you ask a good question. Just because you land it once doesn't mean you can land it all the time. And just even if you can land it all the time in practice, doesn't mean you can land it under the threat of nerves and competition. So my coaches used to tell me all the time, we're going to train this thing not until we get it right, but until we can't get it wrong. And for me, I feel like the very definition of being a peak performer is being able to perform under pressure. And so just because you land it once, really, that's just the start of the training. Once you can land it once, because then you got to get it solid in practice. you got to get it solid in competition. you got to get it solid enough that you can do it in combination. They call it combination jumps, where you can put two jumps together. So the really, the training just begins at that point. And, um, yeah, it's really hard. Um, for 
Um, uh, there's a there's a couple of things that I want to go with that. Um, so with you that moment that that beautiful moment I can just imagine um, that moment for you and your dad um, was that moment of like him pushing you when it led to other things were you used to your dad pushing you like that all like all the time or was that kind of like a pivoting moment of like okay I need to allow the people that I trust to push me when they know I need to be pushed. My dad always pushed us to be better and to do more and to try bigger and braver things. Mediocrity was not ever accepted in our household. Um, my brother played uh, baseball, and um, I can remember one time him walk. He, he walked out to his position, and my dad was a marine, so he was about as subtle as a as an RPG. And um, he's like, "Do not ever walk." to your position again, you run to your position. And so mediocrity was not ever accepted by my parents. Um, but not in the sense like, oh, if you fail, we're not going to love you. It was, I think you have more. I'm going to push you to do, be, and have more. And walk away from everything that you do if you do well and you stand on the podium, great. But what I really want you to do is think, what can I do again that is repeatable? And what do I still have that I can work on? And that was whether I was on the podium or in last place. It didn't matter. My parents always asked me those two questions. What could I do that's repeatable? And what do I still have to work on? So it was this never-ending pursuit of trying to be the best version of ourselves and to show up and give a little bit more. And if it meant running to our positions or trying one more double axle, when I can tell you my legs were just burning and on fire, that's what our parents uh, required of us. They, they didn't accept mediocrity as a um, anything. I love that. I love that. And my second part that I wanted to, to get to is what you – you you said such something very important is like there's a difference between landing it in practice and landing it under pressure. How do you set your mind up or how do your coaches, your your the people that are helping you, how do they set your practices up, your mindset up so that you are ready and that you are somewhat adapted to an environment that does bring you distractions during practice because if you just go into a quiet arena during practice and it's all yeah that's not that's not realistic you're going out and there's people talking and chatting and people screaming hot dogs and like the coach is whispering and like how do you prepare yourself for distractions so that when you are practicing you are landing it already with the mindset of, yep, keep on bringing the distractions. Well, so I'm going to answer that not in the way, I'm going to answer that not directly. Um, So I can remember one year after I blew the qualifier for nationals and I go back to the rink and start training. You know, my season is over. So I'm already training for the next season. And uh, I was sitting next to Brian, and uh, he says, Val, let me tell you something. He says, there are two kinds of scoops. 
there are great skaters, and I'm just going to pause right there. Brian was a great skater. In the seven years I got to train with this man, I swear to God, I can probably only count a handful of times that I ever saw him fall on his butt. Wow. He he is by far, hands down, the best technician ever. So, anyway, back to the story. He says there are great skaters. And then see, Candace, that was my problem. I skated great. The judges never knew what to do with me. Were, were they going to see Val, who was on fire, or were they going to see Val, who was, you know, whose butt was on the ice? Um, so I wish I could have harnessed that. Um, how you do that is um, putting yourself in that position repeatedly until it's no longer... Um, um, it no longer triggers a uh, central nervous system response from you. Um, I've harnessed that power um, by um, the last 13 years of being in, in CrossFit. I know I can show up in those moments and count on my training um, and trust my body because muscle memory is a beautiful thing. Um, um, so it, it's, it's intentional practice. You don't get to do the thing by only practicing it once in a while. You have to, it's called intentional practice. And, um, it's not that I didn't practice hard when I trained. I just let my emotions get to me. And perhaps that was a result of, um, my immaturity. It could have been a result of, you know, every time I stepped out onto the ice after, um, I lost my dad, it was a little bit of a mind. It, I, I mean, it affected me. Um, but yep. those are all, uh, excuses. At the end of the day, I either performed or I didn't. Um, but I think performing under pressure and executing is like a muscle. I think you can learn it and develop it. But you got to be intentional about it. So I don't know if that answered your question, actually. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. I jotted down notes, so I like the answer. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um. So your your career, the identity of who you believe that you you are, that you like that you were, that you were going to become. Um. You know. If that all went away due to the accident you you went through and you still are um you know working your way through through your disorder of eating and your relationship with food I would like to say it reframe it so that it's not it is a dysfunction you have but let's just say you're still working on your relationship with food yep. um you got into public speaking and you are an author and let's get into that how did those start to come about within your life and, and your career? So I've been a CrossFit coach for 11 years, and I was at the same gym for six years. And some of my athletes, I had had that long for six years, and there's only, you know, so many technical cues um, that I could um, yell at them. Um and, but very early into my CrossFit 
coaching career, I understood fully as an athlete that you can't just develop the, the skills without developing the human. I mean, we are all, are all at the very base, we, we're humans and we have emotions and, and limiting beliefs and dysfunctions. And so I really started trying to target developing an elite human before I developed an elite athlete. And so that kind of came, kind of came. Um, and then jokingly, one of my, um, athletes, uh, said, God, Val, you're so good at that. You should be a motivational speaker. And I'm like, ha ha ha, that's funny. Um, but then a few weeks after that, like this women's group, um, called me up and, um, a friend of mine was in it and they were like, Hey, we, you know, so-and-so told us about your story. Could you come, would you come talk to our group? And then somebody in that group worked for somebody else and was like, Hey, can you come to our group? And then, and then, and then, so it happened. And I eventually, um, I no longer, uh, coach CrossFit and I speak full time. And so that's kind of, uh, the evolution of it. But in my heart, the evolution was, um, I never wanted to compete in the pain Olympics. I want to be clear of that. I don't ever want to compare my pain to somebody else's pain. <laughs> the pain Olympics is not something I want to compete in. Um, I love that. That is good. But that I have, good. yeah, but I have experienced pain. Yes. I like to think that I've, I've turned my, my, my mess into my message. And if there's anything that I have gone through, any little nugget of wisdom that I could pass on to somebody who right now is sitting in pain, who right now is sitting in disappointment, who right now is sitting in heartbreak, and who right now is sitting in fear, if there is anything, any little thing, I can tell them to help them step forward into a life that they hadn't planned on, that they hadn't prepared for, then I feel like it's my obligation to spread my message. And yes, I wrote a book, book this, this past year. I'd like to think it's a book about hope and about being brave enough to, um, Take that tiny step forward. Um, I love Tony Robbins. I love all things Tony Robbins. Um, and he always says, take massive action. And, and I love that. And I think it's appropriate for some things. But there have been times, Candace, where I have been riddled with so much pain, like physical pain, that just getting out of bed was um, a challenge. And so having enough courage to even just get out of bed that day, um, that's a little step. So I never, ever, ever want to undermine somebody's attempt at stepping through. Because all those little steps add up to bigger steps. And then those steps add up to bigger steps. And soon, hope you'll, soon hopefully, you'll find yourself on the other side of that obstacle. Yes, yes. I like... I like that you said it's almost like your obligation. I, I do believe that 
like you said, if we're not putting it as the pain um, Olympics and we're not putting it in the, oh, well, look at my pain versus your pain or my pain's more valid than yours, mm-hmm. um, we open ourselves up to really be able to understand what love is and what compassion is not just for ourselves but for others and so that when things do arise in life hardships do come up struggles do come up we do feel and we do can we can get the feeling of the obligation to share our message so that when the person that's going through it knows that they're not alone if we can all just understand by that like coming from that place not here's my pain versus your pain but hey i've experienced i'm i've i've felt what you felt in a capacity to a degree not maybe exactly because it can't ever be exactly but to a degree i have felt that emotion and let me sit there with you. Let me help you feel it, honor it, and transform it into something good for you. Because like you said, you feel it. You feel it in your body. And this is one thing where I'm really getting fascinated about in my in my journey, in my coaching, is the the body awareness, the breathing, the the, the relationship with n- nutrition, all of that, because it really does play a huge role in your the way that you show up in in, in life in in general. Um, because food's just a natural day to day thing. It's in your life, whether you want it to be or not. <laughs> whether you're forcing it out every time you're eating it, whether you're forcing it, not eating it, at some point you do eat and you binge or you eat and it's just a little bit. There's, it's a part of who you are, and that's and we you have to come to understand that. And I love that you brought that 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 you brought it up. It's it's like an obligation to share because if it's coming from an empathy place, that's that's what we need. The world needs that. The world needs more compassion, not comparison, compassion. And I've always tried when I speak in front of an audience to be authentic and and vulnerable and to let them in and let them see my past pain. Um, I'm nothing special. I'm nothing unique. But when I enter into that, those emotions, it allows them to be authentic and vulnerable back with me. And Candace, I have heard some horrific stories of pain, heartbreak, fear, disappointment. Um, that's why I, I prefaced it by saying I don't want to compete in the pain Olympics because I have heard such horrific stories and um, these people have fought and clawed their way back. But yeah, to sit in humanity and, and, and sit with them in the fear and sit with them in the heartbreak there's something um powerful about that. There's something that that moves humanity when you allow yourself to be vulnerable. So um I mean people have told me their stories and I have just just cried like yep. a baby because of 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 how deeply it, 
it, it has affected and impacted their lives. And so my story, it, it, like, uh, oh, boo-hoo, I lost my Olympic dream. And, and people are telling me about family members who have been killed or, like, all the things. So, um, yeah, it's it's okay to be vulnerable and yeah. open yourself up. I I, I 100% believe that, like, being vulnerable is so, so important. But I also believe that there does come um, a set of boundaries with being vulnerable. Um, Because I, I believe it's Brene Brown that says that going out and just spewing your vulnerability on everybody is not an okay thing. That's what puts a lot of people in the victim role because then they go around and they go, oh, oh, woe is me. Nobody cares. And it's because they're going and just blasting it on everybody. Mm. And I like how she says it. It's almost like putting people like a deer in a headlight. So like, whoa, (laughs) like, uh, I just met you two weeks ago. Like, yeah. You just started to work here and you're laying all of this on me, right? Like, no wonder I'm giving you the cold shoulder tomorrow. Like, I don't want to know your business. Like, I'm dealing with my own stuff. Like, so how do you, how do you channel in your vulnerability and how do you find the right people within your life? It comes back to finding that inner circle. Um, how do you find those people? Like, what characteristics, what do you look for in somebody um, in order for you to show those vulnerabilities, those deeper vulnerabilities? I believe we all need to be vulnerable to everybody at a certain degree because that's where compassion and love and kindness come from. But when it comes to that deep stuff, how do you find those people? Well, so that that's a great question. And it has a couple of different answers. Um, it's very different for me when I'm hired by an organization or a conference planner or a meeting planner. And my job in, you know, 45 to 60 minutes is to impact, influence, and entertain their audience. So I have to go out there and, um, kind of immediately open myself up to that vulnerability. Um, I have kind of a standard introduction that I that I give the person who announces me that kind of um, is um, just the highlight reel of all my my tragedy in my life. Um, and then I, you know, when I get on stage, I go d- deeper. So that moment is like I only have 45, 60, if I'm lucky, 90 minutes to um forge a bond with my with my audience and try to get them um to understand so I can influence and impact them. Um on a pers so that's my one answer. On a on a personal level, um I think it's you know, you go a little bit at a time. You don't just dive headfirst into the deep end of the pool. You stand on the side and you just dip your little, you dip your toe in the water and you give the other person a, re- a time to respond and see how, what they do with that response. And then, and then maybe you stick your foot in and see what they do with that. And then maybe you go up to your, your, your calf. You don't 
I agree with Brene Brown. You don't just want to vomit all of your your stuff. It's building, um, you know, giving them a little bit, seeing how they handle it. But it's even more important that you do the same for them. If they give you a nugget, don't judge. Don't try to make it better. Don't try to explain it away. Be like, man, that, that must have been so hard. I'm so sorry. You know, um, I follow this girl on TikTok and she's very passionate about like what not to say to somebody who's miscarried. And people are like, they just stay, say stupid things. I think it comes from a good place. I think they want to make it better. Yeah. But there's nothing, you know, but, but to sit in that moment with them, not try to make it better and just be like, man, that must have been, that must have been really hard. I am so sorry. And be genuine with your feelings. So I think it, I think it, that piece is not a one way street. It has to go both ways. If you want to trust them, with your stuff, they, you have to give them, you know, give it to them back and yeah. meet them, meet them where they're at, sit with them in the pain. And, and I think the hardest thing ever is to literally sit there with them in the pain and not be able to, you can't make it better for them. There's yeah. nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. Um, I just make it a policy that if anybody cries in my presence, they will not cry alone. I will cry with you. I'm an excellent crier. Um, so I think, I think that's how I go about it. I try really hard not to just spew. Um, now this arena that we're in today is different. You have me on because I have a story. And so I think it's, I think it's situational. What am I here to do? But personally, man, you got to give some. In fact, shouldn't that be the rule? You should be giving it before you ever ask to receive it. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. And the one word that popped into my head with both of those scenarios is owning. Owning. Um, it's like you said, because when you do only have, you know, the, the hour to talk with somebody, um, to talk with a huge group and you do want to inspire somebody, you want to impact somebody, you want somebody to, to have like a shift within them. Like, whoa, that, it, she's speaking like to me. Like, were we just like having a conversation? Um, I, I think that, that comes to the ownership of your vulnerability. Um, it's, it's showing up and speaking about not saying that you deny the stories, the, the parts of the stories that you're not expressing. It's just owning the story enough so that you can share it. Owning it enough so that you share it enough that you can connect with someone else on some sort of level. Yeah. And I find even with the same thing, you got to own what you give to somebody and you got to own what you will like own how you take in from somebody. Like you said, you like you gotta take in. Like if somebody says something to you, I always like to think, and I like to think it both ways. Is if I wouldn't like it said or done to me, I don't do it to somebody else. But I also like to think of if somebody is expressing or doing it to me, and it 
I feel that it would have been hard for me to do or say to them, and I know it came from an uncomfortable thing, I know that is a moment that I just need to hold space. Because for one, I know that that's what I'm probably requiring from them. So I just, I just, I, I first start off with just kind of a more of a body language expression, like, hey, I got you. I know that was probably difficult to say. I don't try and start off with blurting something out of my mouth. I'm just kind of like, hey, let's just sit here right now. Let's just sit. I, and, and I ask questions that help them reveal what they're trying to reveal within themselves. I find that that's more important than trying to fix it. Um, asking questions, just kind of like, where is that? Where where are you feeling that in your body? I'm 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 big on, especially now, like, where are you feeling that in your body? How do we how do we loosen that up? How do we get that out of your body and that system? Do we need to just maybe have a dance party, throw on some music and dance? Maybe you're open up then. Maybe that's all that you need to kind of feel that emotion right now and release it in a positive way. But I just like to just, I like to, if, if they're open in those moments after I hold space, when, when they show me what they're looking for. And generally people will do that. Okay, let's move on. I, I spoke about it. Let's move on. Or, hey, now I, I, I want your advice. I want you to help me with things. I don't like to give advice. I like to help people find their own advice. So right. what is it? Like, where are you feeling it in your body? Why might have that come up? Like, have you felt that before? And what did you do to over, like, how did you face it before? Kind of helping people guide them to know that they've, they've conquered things like this before. And that they can do it again. And that I'm right there with them. And that's a great, that's a great piece of advice, Candace, because just because something worked for one person doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for somebody else. I'm under no misconception that anything that is written in my book is going to help everybody who picks it up. Um, that's not how it works. So um, I like how you said that. You know, I don't give advice. I try to lead them to advice that's going to work for them. And that's what a beautiful gift because that's a, that's, that's a really, that's, you are wise beyond your years. That is quite profound. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I just have, I, I can honestly go on and on and on <laughs> with you. And there's just, there's so much, like I have so much, I have so much written down. I've journaled and notes and stuff. Um, but um, our, our time is kind of coming near. So I just have a couple more questions for you. Um for one, where can my listeners find you? Most important, where can my listeners find you, your products, your services? Let's get that out there so that I don't forget that because sometimes I do. And then I'm like, ah! <laughs> I am at valjonesspeaks.com. And on my website are all my links to my socials as well. Perfect, perfect. Awesome. Now, my final question, and before I get to it, um, I want to just say thank you so much again for showing up today, um, sharing your vulnerability, owning it, and and 
being able to give your insights and, and your wisdom and really just being able to allow people in to your life. And then also thank you for taking all that life has given you, whether it's been loss, any circumstance, but turning it into impact and a positive impact for the world because you are making it such a more beautiful place. Like you've already touched my heart in so many ways and I know you're going to impact the listeners. And I know there's so much for my listeners to take away from today. And I just thank you. Thank you for being you and thank you for owning it. And I just, I can't thank you enough. My final question um, is, what is your perspective on positivity? My perspective on positivity. Positivity isn't looking at life through rose-colored glasses. And, you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, my dad died. That's great. That's not what positivity is. At least not, it's not for me. First of all, I think it can be trained. If you're not a naturally positive person, I think it's a muscle. You, you can train it. Um, positivity is accepting the bad moments, knowing that nothing lasts forever, that there are better moments ahead, that the good will come. Um, being a positive person, like I said, isn't, isn't uh, sticking your head in the sand and thinking everything is great. It's having the hope in your heart that you have the power not to change things, but to change how you think about things and how the stories that you tell yourself about the thing. And that is where the true power of positivity is. It's not the story that happens to us. It's the, it's the lies that we tell ourselves about the stories. Do you get it? It's, it, you know, it's not like, oh, I was orphaned by my dad dying. Like that's, that's, a, that's the story I'm telling myself. Um, so it's, it's, it's telling yourself that better times are ahead, accepting what is and knowing that I'm going I'm to go back to say it. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. The only thing you can control in your life is your attitude and your work ethic. And let me tell you, if you can nail down those two things and like do them consistently, you don't have to accept mediocrity. You can achieve your peak performance. And I swear it. I swear it a million times over. I swear it. I love that. Something just caught my eye and I need you to give these three components. Okay. The last time we talked, mm-hmm. uh, you gave me three components and I got down and written down the second, the third one because I was so caught up listening to the thing. Can you share those three components for us? The last one What's that? I just know the last one is never give up. Yeah. So I, I always want to try to leave my audiences with something positive, something for them as they're laying their head down at night, like something for them to really think about. And it's um, three things. Uh, first um, is kind of what I just said. You are not what happens to you in life. It is an event. It is not a definition. And it certainly isn't a label. It is an event. 
The second thing, and I've said it a couple times in this podcast, sometimes, you know, Candace, you can't control what happens to you, but you can always control your attitude about it. And my favorite skater of all time, Scotty Hamilton, he says it best. The only true and real disability in life is a bad attitude. And I love that. And if you know anything about Scotty's story, it's, I mean, he's been plagued, right? Talk about the pain Olympics. He's been plagued with some cancer and brain tumors and everything. And he is the most positive person I have ever met. And the last thing is never quit. I mean, ever. You, you can never be out of the fight. Um, in fact, studies have proven when you quit, it actually writes itself into the neuroplasticity of your brain. And so the next time that very organic uh, fight or flight response happens, your body's going to tell you, your brain is going to tell you, quit. It's just easier. And then that time, right, writes itself like, like you're literally programming your brain. Yep. Yep. Now, I want to be crystal clear with your audience about there is a huge difference between redirecting your track, uh, redirecting your energy and quitting. Your brain knows the difference. Quitting says, I'm done. I just don't want to do it anymore. This isn't worth it. Versus this path that I'm heading down is not going where I'm, where I'm wanting it to, or I'm not getting the results out of my efforts. So I am going to try something different. There is a difference. Understand it, know it, but never, ever, ever. One of my hashtags that I always use is hashtag never out of the, never out of the fight. You will have to bury me for me to be out of the fight. No matter how many times I get knocked down, I will come up. I will get up. I will come out of my corner. And I will be ready to fight again. You can never, ever be out of the fight. Yes. Wow, wow, wow. Didn't I tell you? Laura Jones is phenomenal. I honestly could have kept talking forever with her our conversations were just fantastic and because of that i'm definitely going to have her on again there's just so much more to her story she has so much more inspiration insights and wisdoms to share and i want to get it all for you guys and i hope that you took away something from this podcast episode and implemented into your life so that you can become a little bit more successful you can become a little bit more you and you can become one percent better every single day i hope this episode connected with you i hope it allowed you to realize that you are not alone in any type of struggle and that you can thrive in this life if you like this episode please let us know by tagging us in the socials it's at spark plug wellness on instagram and at val.jones for instagram and val jones and candace axford for facebook also please rate and review the podcast it truly does help get the value of my guests out there to more listeners and lets me know that i am on the right track 
I appreciate you guys so very much. Thank you for listening. It is now time to go out and do something positive and be positive.